thank everybody for your participation in that this morning. I hope that I can contribute to our worship this morning as I present part of God's Word to you. I'm excited to continue my look at the book of Hebrews, and we're now to Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. For those of you that are visiting with us or may have been uh, missed one of the last ones, well, just a quick recap about what the book of Hebrew is and what it was intended for. It was written in the latter half of the first century uh, to Christian Christians who were formerly Jews, Jewish Christians, and probably to those that were in the city of Jerusalem. And those people who were under during intense persecution by the Roman Empire at this time, they were, they were facing many trials related to that. Also in AD 70, the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Roman Empire and the temple that was there and the, the trappings of that that a lot of, of these Jewish Christians were still trying to cling on to. They held those things very near and dear. That temple would be destroyed. The city would be destroyed. And the writer is writing the book of Hebrews to them to encourage them to stay strong in times of persecution, times of trial, but also to warn them about apostasy and warn them about clinging to their traditions in the law of Moses and, and instead focus their, on their faith in Christ and how important that is to them. And so we kind of use this uh, framework here, this table, if you will, to kind of base a lot of our study on talking about how Christ is superior to all these things. As I said, we're going to cover Hebrews chapter 8 today. We talked in Hebrews chapter 1 about how the seven wonders of Christ that are listed there in the first three verses and how Christ, God has spoken through his son in these last days. He's spoken in a final way to the world about his will for mankind and how Jesus Christ and all these attributes that he possesses makes him worthy of that, how he's superior to the angels in chapters 1 and 2. He's worthy of more glory than Moses in chapter 3. We find there's a rest for the people of God, much like God designed the Sabbath day and the promised rest for the children of Israel, but there's a greater rest in Jesus Christ for God's people. We talked in beginning in chapter 4, we begin the discussion about Jesus as our great high priest, and that conversation has continued through the last few sermons that we've done as well, and we'll conclude really in chapter 10. But he talked about, introduced this idea of Jesus as our great high priest in comparison to those high priests of the Old Testament. He had a, a warning there in chapters 5 and 6 talking about them being dull of hearing, how they weren't maturing, growing as Christians. Rather, they were stagnating in their immaturity, and they were not ready for strong meat. And he warned them that they could fall away from the grace of God because of that. And yet, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 through 20, he gives them a, a message of hope, that we can have full assurance of hope in Jesus Christ, and that's based on the promise that God made to Abraham all those years ago that he would bless all the nations through him, and that he swore an oath to confirm or say that I will keep that promise. And then last time we talked in Hebrews 7 about the order of Melchizedek, this man Melchizedek in the Old Testament who was a king and a priest whom Abraham paid tithes to, and the writer uses Melchizedek to show that he was, has a resemblance or a type of Jesus Christ in his priesthood. And so as we get into chapter 8, we're going to start shifting the focus away from what makes Jesus qualified to be our high priest and start looking and focusing in on what does he do as our high priest and what is it about his high priesthood and his ministry there that makes him, uh, makes the covenant that we're in now a better covenant than the Old Testament. And so in Hebrews chapter 7, as we covered last time, he talks about this oath that God swore. Now, God swore an oath to Abraham to keep the promise, but God also swore an oath that Jesus would be our great high priest. It says in verse 21, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever 
And verse 22 says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay, a better covenant than that of the old. It makes Jesus a guarantor. He guarantees that, the fact that he is our great high priest and what he accomplishes in that ministry. And so we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus has a more excellent ministry in his role as our great high priest and how he accomplished that. And this is going to continue. This thought is going to continue through this morning. This afternoon, we're going to conclude chapter 8. And then even through into chapter 9 and chapter 10, it's still going to cover Jesus' priesthood and his role in that and what makes this a better covenant for you and I. So in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning of verse 1, he says, now the, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And I look at this verse as kind of a, a pivot point for the writer when he's, he's, he's basically saying, okay, I've established now, I've spent four, you know, they weren't based in chapters back then, but chapters four, five, and six, and seven basically proving to you that Jesus is our great high priest. And that is the priest that we have. That is the priest that serves for us and ministers for us. He's, in, he's, in, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And that verse also alludes back to the beginning of the book of Hebrews in that prologue, the seven wonders of Christ, where it talks about how Christ, after making purifications for sin, sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. He's alluding to that every time he makes one of these thesis statements. Verse 2 says, He is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent of the Lord set up, and not man. And it's really a few ideas in, these, in this second verse here that I want to hone in on this morning and think about. Number one, that Jesus, in his role as our great high priest, is a minister. Now, I don't know what people think about most of the time when you, when you hear the word minister. I know a lot of people in the world will think about, well, it's, a, it's the preacher at a church who's there week after week preaching to his congregation. He's the, the spiritual shepherd of that congregation. And from a worldly standpoint and Western Christianity, that's probably what a lot of people think of. But the word minister really means a lot more than that. It means more than just a preacher, or it means more than even just really just a religious leader in that sense, in the way the Scripture uses it. This uh, word that it's translated here, liturgos, um, occurs five times in the New Testament. It's translated as minister four times, and he that ministers is once. And it's where we get our English word liturgy. That's where that word comes from. And this is the Webster's de- definition because this is an English word. A rite or body of rites prescribed for public worship. So that's where this word liturgy kind of comes from. But in terms of the way it's used in the Bible, it can mean more than just religious services. Now, it definitely has that connotation with it, especially in terms of what we're talking about today. Romans 13, when Paul talks about the governing bodies and the rulers of this world, he says that they are ministers of God attending to things, attending to the things that governments are supposed to attend to. And that's, that's why we pay taxes, so they can do those things. And they're supposed to be doing those things. Whether those governments always do those things, that's a matter for debate, I suppose. Uh, Romans 15, when Paul talks about his own ministry, he says that he is a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. When you look at Paul and think about him as a minister of the gospel, would you think of somebody that's passive in that role, that just kind of sits around and does nothing? I wouldn't think that. By reading the book of Acts, by reading all the letters to the New Testament, we know that Paul was very active in his role. He was very committed. As zealous as he was as a Jew and a Pharisee persecuting the church, he became just as zealous in his service as a minister of the gospel. 
And he went all around to different places preaching in the synagogues and converting people from Judaism. He went to the Gentiles and made Christians there and he talked to people about Jesus and he wrote letters to all these congregations and he established leadership, so on and so forth. He's very active. And so this word minister that we're looking at is a very active word. It's not passive at all. Philippians 2.25, Paul talks about this man Epaphroditus. He says, he's my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. What need did Paul have? Don't know. All I know is that this man Epaphroditus was a worker. He was a soldier. He was a messenger. He was there for whatever Paul needed. And so when we talk about the role of Jesus as our great high priest, we shouldn't think of that in terms of a passive role at all. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3, it says, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. You know, the Old Testament priests, as they served at the tabernacle when they were in the wilderness, then in the temple in Jerusalem, they were very active. They were, in, they were there every day offering gifts and offering sacrifices. It was a very bloody affair. Blood ran like a river from the altar of that place. And, and once a year, the priest would go in and make the, the sacrifice of atonement for the sins of himself and the sins of the people. We understand that. And so he's saying the priesthood of Jesus Christ is no different from that. It is necessary for this priest or for Jesus to have something to offer as well. Well, what does he have to offer? He has his own blood. He has his own body that he gave for us. You know, and a lot of times I think we think about the work of Jesus. And we often refer to the ministry of Christ. And we were, when we say that, we're referring to his work on this earth. Is basically his 33 years of life, roughly the three years of his actual quote-unquote, ministry. But, you know, that was just the very beginning of Christ's ministry. That's really where it all started. And, yes, there's a finality to this idea that Christ came and he did his work. He lived his life perfectly. And he gave himself, offered himself on the cross. And he shed his blood. And he endured that suffering and that shame. And he rose from the dead. And then we read verses like what we've read this morning about how he's set down at the right hand of the majesty. And we, we almost picture that as a sort of sigh of relief, like, it's done. And Jesus even said, it is finished. And to a, to a certain degree, to a certain point, that is true. The work of Christ was done and fulfilled there at the cross and with his resurrection. But Christ does not stop being a minister and actively working for us just because he is now seated at God's right hand. And the imagery we have is this throne with God the Father sitting upon it and this chair next to it where Jesus sits and, that's, and I'm not saying there's not a place like that. Maybe there is. But what I'm saying is that's meant to show us the place of Christ's authority and his position and access to the Father. And Jesus has a very active role. He is there offering something to God on our behalf still. He has had something to He must. It is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. And he offers his blood and he offers his body continually. And we're going to read later on in Hebrews that the the importance of the fact that Jesus didn't have to repeatedly suffer. He didn't have to repeatedly die on the cross like those old priests in the Old Testament had to repeatedly offer sacrifices. His sacrifice was so perfect and so pure, he only had to do it once. But that doesn't mean that he stops offering his blood. In Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is always there at the throne of God making intercession for you and I. And the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice that he made, is not a one-and-done thing. We read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all evil. 
The blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all evil. It's not a one-and-done thing. And we need to understand that about the ministry of Jesus, that it is a very active thing still for the last 2,000 years as he's been at the throne of God. It hasn't been him just sitting there with his feet kicked up. He is our minister, and he's our minister in the holy places. He says, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And that's another important thing we need to consider of where Jesus is a minister as our high priest. And, you know, you, you look at this phrase, holy place, and, and I think it's, number one, it's an apt description of, of where Jesus is, but also for the Jewish Christians who were reading this letter in the first century this would have immediately conjured to mind their mind this, which was the, the tent or the tabernacle or the temple that they worshipped in. And as you look at this picture and you see some of the things here described, you can see where the, the writer of Hebrews is beginning to sort of start make these connections and these show these shadows and copies that we'll talk about here in just a minute. Exodus chapter 26, verse 33, he says, You shall hang the veil from the clasps, and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. So we have this image of what the tabernacle may have looked like, just a tent that was set up in the wilderness. And in this room or in this tent, it's divided by this veil that covers about, that separates basically a, a third of the temple from the other two-thirds. He says this first place is called the holy place, and that's where you have things like the table with the showbread, the altar of incense, the, the lampstand with the candles there. And then he says in this other room, separated by the veil, is the most holy place, and that is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, the mercy seat, and that is where the high priest would go once every year to make that sacrifice for the, for the sins of the people. So this is what automatically would have come to mind as the as the people read this phrase that he's a minister in the holy places, that automatically would have come to mind, but then immediately says the true tent that the Lord set up. And so this is not an earthly place where Jesus is a minister. And what I immediately think of when I start thinking of this, this phrase, holy places, I, I thought of a lot of study that I did in the book of Ephesians and the phrase that Paul likes to use a lot there, which is heavenly places. This spiritual realm where our blessings are founded and where Christ sits at the right hand of God and all these things happen that are unseen to you and I. In Ephesians 1, he talks about how that we are blessed in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1 and 20, how that God worked this mighty work when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. In, in chapter 2, verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Ephesians 3 and 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And finally, in Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He's separating the physical from the spiritual, and he's saying, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I don't stand here this morning claiming to understand everything about the heavenly places and what it all entails, and what it all looks like. I don't, I'm not sure the answers are, are given to us in the Scripture. doesn't mean we shouldn't look for them and try to find them. The important thing to notice here, the ministry of Jesus Christ is not an earthly ministry in the sense of what he does for us. He sits at the throne of God in the holy places, the true tent, the true holy places, not the ones that are set up in a tent or a temple. And it's important for us to understand that. Hebrews 8 and 4 says, If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. 
Now, this is important for us to understand and think about as well. Somebody might say, well, if Jesus is our high priest, how come he's not with us? How come he's not here to be with us and to, to stand with us? Well, one reason we talked about last time in Hebrews chapter 7 is we talked about the, the nature of the priesthood of the Old Testament. Only the tribe of Levi could serve as priests. And, and within the tribe of Levi, only the, those that were of the lineage of Aaron and his sons could be a high priest. Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah, and therefore he could not serve as a priest under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. And so therefore, Jesus can't be a priest on this earth. If he was on this earth, he wouldn't be a priest. For that reason, and also for the reason that that's not where God is. God isn't on this earth. God is in the heavenly places, the holy places. And that's where Jesus is making intercession for you and I, ministering on our behalf. He's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. And that word, this concept of the true, it's something that we need to be thinking about and cognizant of, especially as we move forward in the book of Hebrews, because there's a lot of this imagery we're going to have to think about. The true versus not lies or not untrue things, but rather things that are copies or shadows of things that are true. Think of a facsimile. Some of you kids, some of you kids may not even know what a fax machine is anymore. That still seems kind of that was kind of new when I was a kid, a fax machine, but a facsimile, right? A copy of, of something that's sent through the telephone wires to another machine and it prints out. And so the things that we see in the Old Testament are facsimiles or copies or shadows of true heavenly things. I borrowed this graphic from a video of Brother Mike Minson from Oklahoma. Uh, has a video series on his YouTube channel. If you're interested in that, I can get you the link to it. But he, his studies in Hebrews have been very beneficial to me as I've gone through my sermon series to try to help me organize some thoughts and make some points. And if you really want to take a deep dive into the book of Hebrews, that's a, that's a good place to go. Um, I would recommend that. But he lists out all these verses here that, that mention this concept of a shadow or a copy of something versus the true thing. And so in Hebrews 3, for instance, he talks about the, the house of God, how Moses served in the house of God versus Christ being the builder of the house. He talked about how God rested on the seventh day and the Sabbath, the rest that was promised to Israel versus the eternal rest for the people of God. Passing through the veil versus passing through the heavens. Melchizedek resembling or had a likeness to the Messiah. The true tent versus the shadow like we just talked about. The Holy Spirit indicating symbolism of present age. I'm not going to go through and read all of these, but it shows you all throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer is making these comparisons and saying there's this, there are these things in the Old Testament that were shadows and copies of true things, of heavenly things. And that's really important for us to understand as we go through this. In Hebrews 8 and 5, he says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. He's talking about those old priests of the Old Testament. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And this is really important for us to understand. Because as we look at the Old Testament and the things that they did there, and the way we saw that picture earlier of what the, what the tabernacle might have looked like, it was important. And God told Moses, see that you make everything according to the pattern. Why was it so important that Moses do that? Why was it so important that, that all the details were paid attention to? Why couldn't Moses and Aaron have just said, I'm not sure about this part. Maybe we can change this, this part here just a little bit. 
It was important because those things that they were doing and making were representative of true and heavenly things. And maybe they had no indication of that in their own worship. But at the end of the day, they had a purpose and a plan to show what was true later on down the line. In John chapter 4 and verse 21, as Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, he has a conversation with her about worship. And I think he is showing us the, the, the same concept here when he talks about what it means to worship God in spirit and truth. This, this woman asks Jesus, says, you know, we're Samaritans, we worship in this mountain. You Jews, you worship in Jerusalem. Which is which? Which is the best way? And Jesus tells her in verse number 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming and when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And he's telling her, you're right. We worship in separate places. And really, you should be worshiping in Jerusalem because salvation is of the Jews. But then look at what he tells her in verse number 23. Here's the the crucial conjunction, I like to call it, the word but. This indicates there's a change coming. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. Now, I've talked about this before a couple of years ago. Maybe some of you remember that. I was raised in this passage talking about worshiping in spirit and truth. I was raised, and I have even taught myself for a lot of years, that when he says to worship in spirit and truth, what he means is to worship sincerely from our heart and according to God's word, according to the pattern. Now, we've established that that's necessary, and I, I believe that with all my heart, that we should worship sincerely from our heart, and we should worship according to God's word or the pattern that he's given us. But that is not what Jesus is teaching this woman. That's not what he's trying to tell her because he says something's about to change. And when in history has God ever accepted worship that wasn't from the heart and that wasn't according to the pattern? Never. He's never accepted worship like that. What he is saying here, instead of a physical worship, worshiping either in the mountain, in Jerusalem, instead of a a physical worship with things that were just shadows and copies of the true thing, now you're going to have a spiritual worship and a worship that is true, the true things. Here's another graphic that I borrowed from that video. Maybe that helps. You see this light, and you can think of it as the glory of God, whatever you want to think of it as, shining down through human, back through human history and illuminating the cross, the focal point, the fulcrum of our relationship with God. And as it shines on the cross, that casts a shadow that is, in fact, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the law of Moses, the things they did there. A shadow of the true things. And so you have this priest here who's offering this lamb, but it's a physical thing. It's, it's a physical act, and it's a, it's a lamb, not a, not a perfect sacrifice, as, as, as perfect and pure as the lamb might have been. It still could not take away sin. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The spiritual worship, the true place, the true tent where God is, where Christ sits as our mediator with his own blood, which is perfect and pure and can take away our sins. And I hope we can understand the, the nature of the true versus the shadows and the copies. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, he says, But as it is... Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted 
on better promises. So he's circling back now to this concept of a better covenant. A better covenant. And that was talking about how his ministry, we're finally to the sermon title, I guess, the, the more excellent ministry. But Jesus' ministry, his work that he performs for us as our high priest is much more excellent than that of the, the Levitical priesthood. Just as the covenant he mediates is better than the old covenant. And why was that old covenant better? Because it was enacted on better promises. You know, when God made promises to the nation of Israel, his covenant with them was established upon some of those promises. We read that in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7 and 8. God says he's been aware of the outcry of his people. And he says in verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, so on and so forth. That was a promise that God made. He was going to take this nation who had grown up in slavery and to bring them out and to give them their own land. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 18, speaking of the giving of the law and and God's promises regarding the law of Moses and what it meant. He says, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, love the Lord, walk in his ways, keep his commandments and statutes, what's he say? You shall live and multiply and the Lord God will bless you. Now understand, this is a promise made not to the whole world, just one particular ethnic group of people, the nation of Israel. And it's all about this life. It's all about, hey, I'm going to give you this, this land. I'm going to give you this nation. And here's this law. And if you, if you obey this law, if you love me and you walk after me and you follow me, then you're going to be blessed. I'm going to multiply you and, and bless you in the land that you're in. But he says, if, you, if your heart turns away, if you will not hear, if you're drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land. Those were the promises that God made among others, about the nation of Israel. But you know, the new covenant, the better covenant, is established on better promises. Did you know that no one in this room is qualified to be a partaker of this promise? This promise wasn't made to us. It was made to an ethnic group of people called the Israelites. And no one else in the world could benefit from this promise except them. Now, maybe by chance there's someone in this room, if you could possibly trace your lineage all the way back to somebody from the nation of Israel, maybe you could do that. Even still, it wouldn't apply to you because the law of Moses is no longer in effect. We're going to talk more about that this afternoon. But at any rate, the promises are here. They're good promises in as far as as they go, but they are not the promises that you and I put our faith in, put our trust in. We put our faith and trust in better promises. Promises. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the important part, the part in green here. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a promise of Jesus Christ. And now we see God's promise extending not just to the nation of Israel, but his promise extends to all families of the earth. We can all be blessed in Jesus Christ. The promise of the Messiah that came well before the law. You know, the churches in Galatia 
had a really big problem with this. If you remember our studies from Galatians, they're sort of the Gentile side of the coin that the, the Jewish Christians would be for the book of Hebrews. Instead of a people who grew up with this, with the law of Moses in the Old Testament and who were used to that and it was very near and dear to them, these were people who were new Christians or outside of the nation of Israel and who were then being forced and coerced and sometimes willingly going to the law of Moses and obeying parts of that. And Paul had a lot to say about that when he wrote his letter to them about the law and the promise. And, and in Hebrews, excuse me, Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward, and that's 430 years after the promise was made to Abraham, that law does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. What is he saying there? This is almost legalese. It's almost like reading a contract. But what he's saying is, listen, God made a promise to Abraham that through him, through his seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. That's through Jesus Christ. 430 years later, the law of Moses was brought into effect for the nation of Israel. He said, that doesn't annul the promise that God made. It doesn't void that promise. It's not like the law of Moses, it's not like for 430 years God made the promise and then all of a sudden thought, wait a minute, I'm going to try something new here. I'm going to see if they can follow this law and be righteous that way. That's not what the law was intended to do. It was it's not a plan B. The law it's not the promise. The law is just one step in fulfilling the promise that God made to Abraham. He says if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. A new covenant, a better covenant, established upon better promises. Now, why is all this important? Maybe you're sitting there this morning and the time change has you off and you're sleepy and you're thinking, why is he talking about all this crazy Law of Moses and sacrifices and priests and priestly duties and tabernacles. and What is all this accomplishing? Well, for me, number one, it's interesting, but I'm a nerd. <laughs> Maybe you're not a nerd. But modern religion, we've seen a trend with modern religion to have this tendency to go back and to, to try to obey parts of the Old Testament it's very relevant in that way. There are religious organizations in this world today who will try to tell you, you need to obey parts of the law of Moses. You have uh, organizations like the Seventh-day Adventists, and you have organizations like the, the Messianic Jews who say, yeah, we need, we, Christ is our sacrifice and Christ is the Messiah, but we still need to follow the Old Testament, very much like the Judaizers in the first century, the book of Galatians, Acts chapter 15. And we need to be able to stand and proclaim the truth. Also, in Western Christianity, you have this, this I, I call it a trend, it's been around for a while now, this idea of the importance of, of Israel and the importance of Jerusalem. And I'm talking modern-day Israel and modern-day Jerusalem and how people put so much stock in that. And you have with the, the ideas of the, the end times, uh, doctrines of end times and uh, premillennialism and things like that. And they, they try to make Israel more important than it really is. And we need to be able to stand up and show people all that's done away with. The nation of Israel was destroyed a long time ago in AD 70. The nation that's here now has nothing to do with that nation. And Jerusalem now has nothing to do where it was the center of worship for God's people. That's all been done away with. And we serve a God who's created for us a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. And we have a 
great high priest who ministers for us in the heavenly places, the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. And you and I, not just a certain ethnic group of people, can be a part of that. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 6, this is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is why it's important for you and I. That the Gentiles, that's you and I, we're fellow heirs. Fellow heirs with who? With the Jews who accepted Christ. With the Jews that put their faith and trust in him. We're fellow heirs of eternal life. We're members of the same body. What body? The body of Christ, his church. The pillar and ground of the truth. We're partakers of the promise. What promise? The promise that God made to Abraham that through you all nations of the earth will be blessed. That promise is only fulfilled in Jesus Christ and it's only fulfilled through the gospel, through his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you made him your great high priest? Have you allowed him to serve and minister in the heavenly places on your behalf? I doubt anybody in this room or many people in this modern age really have a desire to go back and obey the law of Moses and be justified by that. But a lot of times we're, we bind ourselves to our own law, our own ideas of righteousness, our own ideas of what's right and wrong and what's good, what might can get us to heaven. None of it will. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And if you want to obey the gospel this morning to be buried with him in baptism, we want to help you with that. If you need the prayers of this church for any reason, please come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.